Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association. I'm Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 26th of February 2018 and this is episode number 52. In today's programme, I interview PhD candidate Joanna Costin on her study into Cambridge communities in the Great War. Joanna is one of six research students who were recipients of the WFA's PhD scholarship grant, which is designed to further academic research and understanding into the Great War. I spoke to Joanna from her home last month over the miracle that is Skype. Joanna, welcome to the podcast. I wonder if you could start by telling us about how you became interested in the Great War and ended up doing a PhD on the subject. Uh, so my first encounter with the sort of history of the First World War was in high school, like a lot of people. The way it's taught, you get given all this information about trenches, how impossible it was for the war to be won. And then all of a sudden you get about a paragraph on 1918 and they say, and then the war was over. And I didn't understand how that was possible. So my first ever uh, research into anything to do with history was related to the First World War, um, because I was just not happy with the way it was presented that, you know, all of a sudden the Germans break through, then the British break through and then the war's over. Uh, So the first proper history books I read were about 1918 to try and figure out what was going on. And then I sort of I was interested in history more generally as well. So I did history at university, um, but didn't really do the First World War again until my dissertation at the end of my third year, which I did on the Accrington Powells. So that's really where it kind of came from. So what's the subject you're currently researching? Uh, So I'm looking at Cambridgeshire communities during the First World War. So it's it ended up being a lot more about the civilian side than I initially expected. Um, So I've done a lot of research into soldiers, but most of that's probably not going to make it into the final thesis. Um, So I'm looking at using a mixture of statistics and also more traditional approaches with local newspapers to get a kind of overall picture of how communities respond to the war and, and what's happening in Cambridgeshire during the war. So when you talk about communities, are they geographical communities or are they occupational communities or is it a combination of of the two? Uh, So it's a little bit of a combination of the two. So I'm looking at a lot of villages, but also the university as a community, which um, so I've used one of the colleges as a case study, Clare College, because the way the university kind of thinks about their community is quite different. So even before the war, even before you've got people going off to fight, there's still this kind of idea that once you've been a member of a college, you're somehow part of that community forever. So in some ways, the universities have an advantage in kind of conceiving how people who are not physically present in their community are still part of that. But even in some of the villages, you see people who've gone off to, say, Canada or Australia, still appearing in the local news columns, even before the war. So there's still this kind of sense that if you're born in the community or your family's in that local community even if you're not physically present you're still somehow a part of that community. So what made you actually choose this subject? I started doing my research for fun because I was working as a house parent and you get a lot of free time during the day which there's you know most people aren't free at two o'clock in the afternoon and there's not 
always an awful lot to do. So I started going into the local library and just kind of reading through the local newspapers. I'd seen a mention um, when I was studying the Accrington Pals that there was a Cambridgeshire Pals battalion. So my research really started with, well, what's going on in Cambridge during the war? Because the sources are conveniently located and I'm a little bit bored. So I just started researching and gradually it turned into a, a kind of idea that, okay, uh, I took the community of Abraham as my first one because it was quite small. And I sort of thought, OK, well, if the war really did affect every single person in the country, you ought to be able to prove that by using the 1911 census and kind of researching, did all the men from the village go or, you know, did every family lose someone? Did every family have someone at war? Uh, and once I started doing that on a spreadsheet and, you know, as soon as you put things into a spreadsheet, you can start creating statistics so it was never my intention to create a huge set of statistics about sort of individuals and the occupations that are most likely to volunteer for the war. But I kind of ended up with that by default from the way I organised the initial research. So why do you think your subject's important? The, I think the statistics are probably the most important part of it and also the bit that's taken me the longest. Uh, because all the statistics about who joins the army are working from uh, the top down. So they're from Board of Trade reports and things like that. And basically they count how many people are missing from a certain industry or a certain occupation. And there's all kinds of problems with them. Um, you know, they're not necessarily accurately representing agriculture, for instance, or small employees. So what I've actually managed to find is that if you look at the percentage of people across different sort of farm labouring occupations, you find a very different uh, percentage who serve in the war. So farmers and their sons, and this is only based on people who are actually age eligible for war service it's not including the fact that you know the um population of a certain occupation might sort of include a lot more people who are over or under the age to serve so the percentage of farmers 21 percent who serve in the war the percentage of ordinary farm laborers is 50 percent, and that's a huge discrepancy and something that wouldn't previously have been apparent because the board of trade statistics just group agriculture together all in one go and you can also see a similar thing in the pattern of um, appeals to tribunals so if you look in the local newspapers there's accounts of pretty much every single tribunal decision for the local area and if you then match that up with the sort of 1911 census for a district, you get the statistics that 8% of ordinary farm labourers either appeal for exemption or are appealed for by their employee, um, by their employer, sorry, uh, but 34% of farmers and their sons are appealed for. So there's a massive difference. So it becomes quite an interesting sort of idea that the higher social, higher you are up the social ladder, the more chance you have of being, um, should we say, excused from more service. Yeah, and that doesn't, so the tribunal appeals don't take into account the number of farmers whose cases don't even get to a tribunal because they're deemed, you know, by the uh, recruiting officer to be too important to even try and call up. I mean, that's 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 really interesting because you're starting to get some sort of, because there was some very interesting work that Adrian Gregory did suggesting um, that there was a perceived discrepancy between certain rural communities yeah. and, their, and, their, and the so-called equality of sacrifice that people in the towns were joining up and fighting where people in the country weren't which I think was a bit of a myth around that but he mm. presents some interesting things and that seems to suggest that certainly the lower down the social scale you are the less or the more chance you are of being packed off to your local regiment or of volunteering yourself you know yes of course um, it's quite hard to split the figures between volunteers and conscript because a lot of the 
people that I know serve, I know from the absent voter list, which doesn't tell you when people joined. And although you can, to a certain extent, use regimental numbers, it's not a sure thing. So sometimes people might have a really high regimental number, but they've actually been in another battalion first and had a lower one. Uh, so it's it's quite difficult to make that distinction. Have you actually looked at the motivation for people joining up? It's quite difficult, especially with the sort of more ordinary farm labourers because of the, you know, their literacy levels were a lot lower. So there are surviving letters, but very often they go along these lines. Dearest mother, father, sister, brothers, I hope this letter finds you well as it leaves me. Uh, you know, and it kind of carries on, you know, thank you for the socks. Uh, please send me some more. Uh, lots of love and about 20 kisses. So it's a little bit more difficult to look at motivation. What I have looked at, though, is the way in which people were recruited sort of uh, on an organisational level. So Cambridge has a very interesting body called the Ladies Recruiting Committee. And basically, it's a bunch of uh, middle and upper class women who decide that they're going to start this committee in conjunction with the Cambridgeshire Regiment to recruit local men to serve in the war. Uh, And most other places where women get involved in recruiting, you know, they're handing out white feathers and there's a lot of kind of controversy about it, even uh, as a contemporary, you know, even amongst contemporaries, they're not too keen on women giving white feathers to men. Uh, But in Cambridgeshire, these sort of upper class ladies, they're very accepted and you know this is kind of what a wonderful job they're doing uh and even when you start seeing things where it's like oh the ladies recruiting committee have been on the warpath and you start thinking oh and it's like this excellent body of women is up to you know have decided that they're going to get comforts for all the troops they've recruited uh so it's very interesting to have this upper class women trying to sort of engage with all social classes not always um successfully but certainly their involvement in organising recruiting meetings, distributing posters, encouraging lower class women to talk to their husbands or sons and all that kind of thing. It's really quite fascinating. One of the other things I was looking at was um, the idea of sort of a regional patriotism in terms of uh, people fighting or claiming to fight for their local area. Have you found that at all? There's a lot of stuff in the, especially in recruiting meetings, where it talks about, you know, go and defend your village and also a local competition. So you kind of see these um, in the local newspapers where it's giving the number of recruits from each village and saying some villages are doing spectacularly well. uh, But if you look at the percentage of recruits somewhere like Horseheath has sent, what's going on there? They're terrible and and unpatriotic. And so it's actually explicitly, there's even a little booklet that I found in the University Library for the Cambridgeshire Petty Sessional District. So it's it's not the whole county, it's just a, a small district that has printed the name of every single person who's volunteered up to about April 1915, whether they're married or not. And then at the top, it helpfully tells you the number of people, uh, the number of men in the 1911 census for that village, the approximate number who are eligible based on their age, and suggests that the best way to tell if a village is patriotic or not is to divide the number who go by the number who could go. Uh, and then you can create your own little rank of, you know, which villages are most patriotic. And it was absolute godsend for doing the statistics because for that. Uh, so I've had to choose two. I've basically to- chosen two districts because to do the whole of Cambridgeshire would be um, an astronomical amount of work. And so as soon as I found that, I knew which district I was going to. Well, one of the two districts I was going to pick would have to be that one because the the level of detail where you've got you, lists of men that you know have volunteered 
it gives you what regiment you're, that they're in, it gives you their rank at the time, uh, in some cases it gives you the service number. So it made it really easy to identify those people as well, which was very useful. And have you done anything on the role of women? I'm just thinking about the absent voter lists in terms mm. of, I've certainly done a bit of work on, on absent voter lists in London, and they do actually list where a number of, of women who are eligible to vote under the 1918 Act were serving. I don't know whether you found any sort of interesting patterns I haven't there. found any women on the absent voter list who are serving um, away from home but there are some quite interesting comments in the newspaper about um, a family who'd sent four sons off to fight and then in 1917 there's this article uh, that I've just found um, quite recently saying and now the daughter's gone off to fight too to sort of you know she's in uniform now. The main recruiting of women in Cambridgeshire was sort of for the munitions factories. So they sent a whole bunch of women down to Woolwich Arsenal. Uh, and there's actually all these recruiting meetings. And if you exclude the fact that it says women and making munitions and change that for men and fighting, it is almost identical in tone and in approach to the earlier recruiting speeches for men. Yeah, so, and the other thing for Cambridgeshire is the farm, that's uh, the rural workers, because they're desperate to get women on the land. Have you done any sort of comparison between the urban and rural settings? Um, I was hoping to, and I'd still quite like to, but I've had a little bit of a difficulty because the absent voter lists only exist for Cambridgeshire County and not for Cambridge Borough. Uh, so I can't do a proper statistical comparison between a town, a street in the town and villages, which was what I was initially hoping to do. Um, but some of the places in the Cambridge Petty Sessional district are quite sort of urban so places like Trumpington or Chesterton do kind of have quite a, a high percentage of people who are in sort of town occupations. And finally Janet what do you hope to do with your PhD once you've completed? I'd really like to work doing education in a museum setting uh, when I finish but I'm not sure whether that will ever happen but that is my dream job to sort of do education and outreach in a museum. Joanna thank you very much for your time. Thank you. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.